You know, I think um, with the news about Jen being released uh, in answer to our prayers and that song, we could just pray and call it a day. That'd be good. But there's more good news. I got more good stuff for you. Uh, let me share some more with you. Um, as you know, we've been taking our pledges. We're so close to being debt-free for a church. You know, I think um, with the news about Jen, at 175000 this year to be debt-free in three years. Right now, we're at $188,500, so that's super encouraging. Also encouraging is this year, 169 families have been participating with us, and as of today, there are 191 families that are participating. So, yeah, really encouraging. There's still about 80 of you that are waiting to join in. And I want you to know you're still welcome. You can still join in. And if you do, it'll probably bump us up, probably close to that $200,000 mark, which would be absolutely outstanding. So you can still get that in if you'd like. Um, So if you want to uh, open your Bibles to... Matthew chapter 2, that's where we'll be today, and I'll pray for our time in the Word. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are Lord of the nations, and that uh, kings' hearts and judges' hearts, judges' hearts in Africa, are shaped by your sovereign kindness. And we thank you for the release of our sister. We give you praise. You are so kind. And we thank you for the generosity that you're producing in our hearts as we train to be people who are more and more like you. God, we give you thanks. Now we give you thanks for your son. Help us to respond to the revelation of who he is rightly. Open our hearts to your word now, we pray, by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 1, the account of Christ's birth there, and we saw that as Matthew starts with a genealogy, it reveals to us the genealogy of Jesus. It reveals to us that Jesus is the son of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. He was also revealed through that genealogy to be the son of David, the forever reigning king. Then the actual account of of his birth heralded him as the Christ who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the one who will save us from our sins, the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And chapter 1 shows us who Christ is. Chapter 2 challenges how we're going to respond to that revelation. We're going to look at a number of different responses to who the Christ is um, that has been shown in chapter 1. And I want you to ask as we go through, do I see myself in this story? What has my response to Christ been at this season? And see what, what you learn about yourself as well as what God is calling you to through these responses in chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Right away, in this drama, we begin to meet the key players. Um, We're introduced here to King Herod. Um, Herod the Great is what he liked to call himself. And he was, uh, had been king, uh, really a Roman kind of governor who called himself king. had reigned here for about 40 years, and he had obviously been a pretty capable ruler. He was renowned for his building projects. He built port cities where there were no cities. He rebuilt um, the Jewish temple in the city of Jerusalem. But his enduring legacy in Scripture is different, as we'll see. Now, we also meet in the early verses of chapter 2, once again, a second king in this tale of two kings, and that is King Jesus, whom the Magi refer to him as the King of the Jews. And we know that title means more than just 
Um, simply the king of a small nation of little consequence. I mean, the stars do not arrange themselves around second-rate kings. But then there are these magi, these wise men, they're called. The legendary three kings of Orient are, right? Um, And they are a bit mysterious to us. We don't know a lot about them. We should probably start with what we don't know. We don't know how many there were. And we don't know what their names were, contrary to the carol that both numbers them and names them. Um, They gave three gifts, and so some have assumed that there must have been three of them. There could have been a dozen of them. We simply don't know. What we do know is that they are from the east. Scholars suggest it might have been somewhere like Persia or Babylon. And they have likely been traveling a long time possibly for months following this star. And as a result, they likely weren't at the manger scene. So some of you are going to have to go home and bust up your nativity set and move them across the room. Because if you notice, they didn't get there until a little later. And they find Jesus not in a manger, but in a house. And so they, they come a little later on. They have been following a star of sorts um, because they really weren't kings in all likelihood, they were magi. They were magicians. We get our word from that. They were actually pagan astrologers who read the stars to discern what the heavens were teaching us. And this was not an honorable profession in Israel. Pagan astrologers, as one writer put it, were both outsiders in both race and profession. Matt Woodley writes in his commentary on Matthew the significance of this group of pagan astrologers at Christ's birth. He says, by including them in this story, Matthew announces, here come some more sinners, here come more spiritual and moral oddballs, here come the pagan seekers taken by God's hand, led through nature, and then through Scripture right to the little King Jesus. And he's right to see God is leading them. Even before they were seeking him, God is leading them. Clearly, this is God's doing. And they have come, in their own words, to worship him who is born king of the Jews. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And and there went the words. Did I do that? Can you fix that for me? Thank you. We'll be back. I'll read it to you. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So Herod is troubled by this announcement that there is born another king of the Jews. And all Jerusalem, it says, is troubled with him, and and for good reason. And this is really Herod's lasting legacy in Scripture is his ruthless paranoia towards any threat to his throne. Um, Here's a description of how Herod deals with perceived threats. He murdered one of his wives. He arranged a drowning accident for his brother-in-law. He hired hitmen to strangle two of his sons. He even concocted a plan to ensure that everyone would cry at his funeral. He had them gather um, Jewish leaders together, and when he died, his intent was to have them all murdered so the people would be in mourning when Herod died. We could call him Herod the Paranoid. And he convenes now a panel of scholars to find out where this Christ, this king, is to be born. And it's interesting, from the lips of Herod himself, he calls him the Christ, which as we saw last week, to call him Christ is to call him king. And so Micah, the Old Testament prophet who is writing some 700 years before Jesus is born, points the religious leaders and scholars unquestionably to the little village of Bethlehem. And this is the first of a bunch of remarkable prophecies that we'll touch on this morning in this passage. 
by, by this prophecy that the Messiah would be born at Bethlehem, every city on earth, every other village on earth is eliminated from consideration except for little Bethlehem for being the Messiah's hometown. There's a little village, um, maybe 1,500 people in that region, about the size of Youngsville, about the size of Franklinton. That's what we're talking about here. Um, located just five or so miles outside of Jerusalem, Herod could have been there within the hour if he wanted to make the trip, but Bethlehem was also known as the city of David the village where King David hundreds of years before had been born. And so this first prophecy is reinforcing the statement that Matthew started his gospel and that genealogy with, that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David who will reign on David's throne forever. Now down in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, <clears throat> Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word <clears throat> that I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, surprise, surprise, Herod is being deceptive and trying to use the Magi to do his detective work. They continue to be miraculously guided by this star that they've been following. And so you read the story and you think, what's up with the star? Okay. What is that? And lots of suggestions have been made, supernovas, comets, the alignment of planets, the glory of God, like in the pillar of fire in the Old Testament. Um, we don't know, to be honest. Um, and to be more honest, I don't think we're intended to know. That's not the point. The star is not the point. It's the one the star points to. He is the point. I like the way John Piper wrote about it. He says, what is plain concerning this matter of the star is that it is doing something that it cannot do on its own. It is guiding magi to the Son of God to worship Him. There's only one person in biblical thinking that can be behind that intentionality in the stars, God Himself. So the lesson is plain. God is guiding foreigners to Christ to worship Him. And He is doing it by exerting global, probably even universal, influence and power to get it done. Luke shows God influencing the entire Roman Empire so that the census comes at the exact time to get a virgin to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy with her delivery. Matthew shows God influencing the stars in the sky to get foreign magi to Bethlehem so that they can worship him. God goes to that grade of lengths to get people to worship him. You know, this is, this is true of some of you who are in church today. God has moved planets to get, your, to get you here today. If your grandmother knew you were in church, she would fall out, right? God is doing something amazing bringing you here. Um, just like he did with the magi just like he did with every believer that's in this room. He is drawing you to himself. Again, the mercy of God is on display in God's choice to draw these magi to Christ. And it's, it's important that we not sanitize who these guys were. I like the way Professor Dale Bruner puts it. He says, in Israel's conviction... The Magi were idolaters, short and simple. The Magi were held to be people who looked and who taught others to look to beggarly creatures rather than to the Creator for guidance. To Israel in the early church, then, astrologers would be the least deserving guests at the birthday party of the Christ. That's why Matthew, 
the former tax collector and outcast himself, is delighted to see exactly such persons invited. The invitation of the astrologers to the coming out party of Christ indicates the deep and wide mercy of God. So, the Magi's presence is in no way an endorsement of astrology, but it does show the breadth of the mercy of God for us. He's drawing the most unlikely people to Christ to worship Him, people like you and me. Just like in the genealogy, remember all those wicked kings and those Gentile women of questionable repute were used to bring Christ into the world. It's the most unlikely collection of folk that God is drawing to Himself. Now, there's one other thing about the star before we move on that's, I think, important to notice, and that's the star, that the star is not enough in and of itself, right? Um, when they saw the star... And followed it. It led them to Jerusalem, but there they needed to hear the scriptures to lead them to where Christ was. It's been put this way the star was natural revelation that leads the Magi to Israel's scripture in Jerusalem. That's scriptural revelation, which in turn leads them to the child in Bethlehem. That's saving revelation. Nature does not lead the Magi directly to Christ. Scripture is an integral part of that as God draws these men to Himself. The Magi, though, are teaching us how to respond to Christ, and they respond with joyful worship. They're mentors in this. Verse 10, if you look in your, in your Bible, says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Um, it's not enough for Matthew just to say they rejoiced. No, he has to say they rejoiced exceedingly. And then it's not enough for him to say they rejoiced exceedingly. He has to say they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. And, and that's not enough to say they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. He has to say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. To rejoice exceedingly with great joy is to out-rejoice even Daniel Cresswell. Okay? That's the kind of joy we're talking about. It's, it's hard to grasp, but this rejoicing may even be greater than Cresswellian rejoicing. Okay? It's, it's that phenomenal. And they are offering the choicest of gifts. They're bringing their treasures to Christ, gifts that would fit a king costly, may have been used to protect the child's life as it funded that journey to, to Egypt. Um, seeking earnestly, traveling by night, that's how you follow a star for months. Um, glad, sacrificial, costly, persevering worship. This is the first and best response we see in Matthew 2 to the birth of the Christ child. Okay? And they are inviting us to follow their example. It's a stark contrast, their response is, to the response of the religious leaders. Look back at verse 4 and 5. So Herod assembles kind of this uh, a group of scholars, all the chief priests, scribes of the people. Lots of people were involved in this. This is like calling all the seminary faculty together. And he gets this opinion. He inquires of them where the Christ was to be born, and they tell him. Clearly, it's in Bethlehem of Judea, just five miles down the road. For so it is written by the prophet. Okay. But, but they didn't go. Okay. Matt Woodley says, They offered Herod impeccable theological data, but that knowledge didn't rattle their comfortable and privileged position. They didn't budge or begin their own quest. There's no record of them going to see just up in Youngsville, where it is that the Christ has been born, according to prophecy. Strangers from far away have journeyed seeking Him, and they don't even bother to go and check it out. Um, why did they stop at just the data, just the information, just the knowledge, when they could have known and experienced Christ Himself? 
Here's the question that it raises as we look at these religious leaders bumped up against the Magi. Are you this morning an indifferent knower or an exceedingly joyful worshiper? Which of those would best characterize you? An indifferent knower or an exceedingly joyful worshiper? And I, am, I thank God um, always, without ceasing, for our relationship and proximity to the seminary down the street. But there's a vulnerability that comes with being that close to the seminary. Because the closer you are to that campus, the more vulnerable you are to being tempted to be merely an expert knower abouter rather than a jubilant worshiper. Of course, that doesn't have to be the case, and thank God it's not very often the case. And it, temptation surely isn't restricted to that seminary campus. Um, Tim Keller tells someone who'd fallen into that, that temptation, he says, many years ago I met with a teenage girl in our congregation. She's about 16 at the time, and she was discouraged and became depressed. And I tried to encourage her, he says, but there was a revelatory moment when she said, yes, yes, I know Jesus loves me. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven. But what good is it when no boy at school even look at me? He says, she said she knew all these truths about being a Christian, but they were of no comfort to her. The attention or lack of it of a cute boy at school was far more consoling, energizing, and foundational for her joy and self-worth than the love of Christ. He says it was revealing of how our hearts work. Jonathan Edwards would say that she had the opinion that Jesus loved her, but she didn't really know it. Christ's love for her was an abstract concept, while the love of these others was real to her heart. Do you know Christ's love? Do you know it? Do you understand why these magi were so incredibly happy, why they were rejoicing exceedingly with great joy when at last they found that child? Have you taken time to reflect on the wonder of it all, that God would choose the likes of you and me and invite us? Does that make you joyful? There was a 19th century French painter, uh, Gustave Doré, and he was handing a painting of he was handed a painting of Jesus that was just finished by one of his students, and he was asked for his critique. And Doré studied it, his mind searching for the right words, and at last he gave it back to the student. And this is what he said: "If you loved him more, you would have painted him better." Okay. How are you painting Christ? See, with their with their treasures and their joyful worship, these magi, they painted him well. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, greater than Creswellian joy, because they knew him. They got it. Do you get it? Do you understand the significance of this birth for you? By it, I mean who Jesus is and the wonder that he has chosen to love you and even to die in your place. The Magi knew him. They got it. Now down in verse 13, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
And so Herod's fear is transformed into fury because while he was trying to deceive the Magi, they ended up deceiving him. And it's an interesting note that's been pointed out that Matthew, up until this time, consistently calls Herod king until when the Magi worship Christ and immediately after their worship, Herod is symbolically dethroned and is never again called king by Matthew. Why is Herod so provoked? Because he is Herod the Great no more. He has been dethroned by this little child, the true great king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Herod responds to the birth of Christ as a rival. He views Jesus as a rival, and his rivalry leads him somewhere where no one would want to go, to the murder of innocent children. He's so over-the-top villainous, though, it can be hard to imagine that we could respond in the same way as he. But again, listen to Dale Bruner. He says, Herod is not merely the gospel villain. He's every man. Herod is what I am deep down inside. See, whenever we say no to what Christ asks of us, aren't we being rivals to Him? Are we not competing for lordship, at least, of our little lives? Aren't we doing what Martin Luther said when he said, we, we bend in on ourselves and we bend away from God? To fail to obey when we hear the Scriptures taught or when we read them ourselves and their truth is made plain to us and their bearing on our lives is felt by us, to hear and not obey is to nurture and feed our inner Herod and to put ourselves as rivals to Christ for lordship of our lives. By your disobedience, are you feeding your inner Herod such that you're a rival to Christ and his lordship in your life? Um. See, Herod heard the prophecy just as did the Magi. The only difference was he would not bend his knee to it. And this should make disobedience terrifying to us. Once we culture disobedience and let it grow, it cannot be controlled by mere human will. When we resist Christ, we become rivals for the lordship of our heart, and we align ourselves then with evil and bad things. There's a saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. What evil has come into our world, even come into our families because of our disobedience? Thankfully, there's, a, there's another role model, there's another pattern in our passage, and that is that the way Joseph's obedience is described. We saw it last week in chapter 1. We see it again multiple times in chapter 2. It says, when the, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night. There's a sense of urgency about his obedience. By night. And departed to Egypt. And again, it's not just a single time. It's time and time and time again. Skip down a few verses to verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So essentially, the angel says, I want you to take your your young son and wife, and I want you to go back to the place where they were trying to kill him. And he believes the angel, and he trusts the angel, and he follows the angel over and over again. And know that today, if you are mindful of disobedience to Christ in your life, that the example of Joseph pressed up against the horrible example of King Herod is God's invitation to you 
to turn from your sin and walk in glad obedience to what God is saying, to follow his leadership, even as the Magi followed his leadership at every turn. Herod is a warning to us. Your rivalry to God will take you places you do not want to go. Well, there are more of these fascinating prophetical uh, fulfillments in our passage. They're not specific ones, like he'll be born in Bethlehem. They're more general in nature, in the same way that the Old Testament sacrifices generally point to Christ's great sacrifice. The Old Testament kings generally point to Christ as the king of kings. Um, and so, too, you find that his going to Egypt was in fulfillment of, of prophecy and his coming out of Egypt. To and from Egypt, it's not just a geography lesson. The movement of the Christ child is protective of the Christ child, but it also has prophetic significance, Matthew tells us. Scholars have explained it this way, that interpreters have discovered that Jesus' career in chapter 2 retraces the career of Old Testament Israel almost exactly. So Jesus goes from the promised land in Israel to the classic land of escape, Egypt, just as all the patriarchs from Abraham to Joseph had done in the beginning. And then like a second Moses in a kind of second exodus, Jesus is called up out of Egypt to return to the land of promise again. By means of his itinerary, Matthew is saying, look, the new Israel. Humanity has a new representative before God who does what Israel was supposed to do but could not. So this geological fulfillment is telling us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah for whom all of history has been anticipating. Now there's another one of these kind of general prophecies um, and it's a dark and sorrowful one, and that is the, the suffering and even the death of the little ones in Bethlehem. That quote in verse 18, it says, there, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That quote comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, where there is weeping for sons who had been taken into captivity. But the context for that morning is that even when that hardship happens, there's hope. There's a greater hope than suffering that comes through the hand of evil. Look at Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It's the exact verse that's quoted in the New Testament. But then watch what happens next. He says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So just as in Jeremiah, this great suffering by the mothers of Bethlehem, where there's, uh, there's a context of hope in the child who lives, just as there was a hope that exceeded the suffering of those taken in captivity, in the birth of Christ, there's a greater hope for those who suffer an even greater evil now. The prophecy is telling us that Christ is a sure hope that prevails in the face of the worst kind of suffering and evil. And then we read that when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, more obedience by Joseph. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So here we have Herod dying, not long after the slaughter of these little babies in Bethlehem, um, perhaps within the year of that slaughter, scholars estimate. 
And isn't that a coincidence that you would propagate a great evil against innocent children in an attempt to kill the Christ child and then mysteriously you die? Hmm. Um, the timing seems more than coincidental. And then there's that one last dream that Joseph has that leads to one last prophecy. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And scholars have scoured the Old Testament trying to find a messianic prophecy about the Messiah coming from Nazareth, and it doesn't seem to be a specific reference. There's some uh, language that's similar, but it may simply be a broader reference to the fulfillment of what a number of the prophets predicted, and that is that the Messiah would come humble. Um, here's an example. It'll sound familiar to you probably, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's a prediction that the Messiah would come in humility. And Nazareth was so small in Jesus' day that it was often overlooked by some historians. To be from Nazareth was to be what we would call a hick from the sticks, okay? It would be a nobody from nowhere. And Jesus, we see, is stooping now through God's sovereign placement that low that he would come from a place little known with no esteem, he would fulfill the prophet's prediction that he would come humble. He would even stoop so low, John tells us, that one day he would lay aside his outer garments and he would take a towel and he would tie it around his waist and he would pour water into a basin and he would begin to wash his own disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so now we come to this table and we remember the one who humbled himself and came into this world, the one who humbly served and washed the feet of his disciples, the one who would humble himself and die on the cross for our sins, all of this to show us the full extent of his love for us. And so the table at Northwake is open to anyone who is a follower of Christ who's currently walking in fellowship with him. That means you are willing to forsake your sin and come meet with Christ and worship Him and find grace for your time of need. You're welcome at this table. Amen. But as you come, will you be willing to lay aside your indifference, like the scholars, your rivalry, like Herod, and embrace glad, sacrificial worship like the Magi? As we approach the table, let me read to you this Christmas prayer that comes from long ago from an anonymous writer, and it reads like this. O source of all good, what shall I render to you for the gift of gifts, your own dear son? Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above, was born like me that I might become like him. Herein is love when I cannot rise to him. He draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Herein is power, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreate and the created. Herein is wisdom, when I was undone, with no will to return to him, and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost, as man, to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. Bow with me in prayer as we approach the table, please. Father, your invitation to come to this table in memory of your son is beyond an honor. It is, um, it's wholly undeserved by us and we are so mindful that Jesus alone makes us worthy 
to even come to this table in worship of Him. We're mindful that because of Him, our sins, though they have been as scarlet, they are in your holy sight as white as snow. And so we do come to obey and to worship with glad hearts, to follow the directions of our Savior and to remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. This baby boy who's come to earth to bring us joy And I just want to sing this song to you It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift With every breath I'm singing hallelujah, hallelujah couple came to Bethlehem expecting child they searched the inn to find a place for you were coming soon there was no room for them to stay so in a manger filled with hay God's only son was born oh hallelujah hallelujah The shepherds left their flocks by night to see this baby wrapped in light. A host of angels led them all to you. It was just as the angel said, you'll find him in a manger bed, Emmanuel and Savior. The stars shone bright up in the east to Bethlehem. The wise men three came many miles and journeyed long for you. And to the place at which you were, their frankincense and golden myrrh, they gave to you and cried out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! This baby boy would grow to be a man and one day die for me and you. 
My sins would drive the nails in you. That rugged cross was my cross too. Still every breath you drew is hallelujah. 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 Set his love upon the sons of men, or why as shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back. They know not how or when, but this I know. Stand with us. Let's worship the good Lord together. I cannot tell how silently he suffered as with his peace he graced this place of tears. Oh, oh, oh. 
tell how all the lands shall worship when at his bidding every storm is still or who can say how great the jubilation when all the hearts of men with love are filled but this I know the skies will thrill in rapture and myriad myriad human voices God, grant us faith to believe what we can't understand. This is your greatest mercy to us.